0: The going viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice.
1: HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthad.com.au. Hello, and welcome to Health Ed's Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. Associate Professor Paul Griffin explains recent COVID developments that are crucial to your practice. Important new guidelines have been released for vaccination after COVID infections. Paul discusses the latest information regarding key variants such as BA5 and takes a crucial look at new evidence, possibly associating COVID vaccines with cardiac emergencies in younger adults and hepatitis in children.
2: Hi, Paul Griffin's my name. I'm an infectious diseases physician and clinical microbiologist, and I'm here today to give you a quick update on COVID-19. I do have a few relevant disclosures, but none of those have influenced the, the content of this talk today. The outline I'm going to really jump around to a few topics that I think are the most relevant. There's still clearly a lot to talk about with COVID-19. I couldn't fit it all into this talk, but I have picked out some pieces that I hopeful that uh, hopefully will be useful today. Just in terms of our current situation, it's clear we still have a lot of cases around. So you can see we still have uh, uh, 54,000 cases in the last 24 hours. These are data from the end of last week. 3,000 still currently hospitalised, 133 still uh, in ICU. So it's clear that COVID hasn't gone away despite some of uh, what we're hearing at the moment. And if you look at the daily new confirmed cases, you can see we had a really big peak at the start of the year. We did get the numbers down for a little while, but really jumped back up and I was zoom in more recent times because you can see case numbers climbed a little bit and then went down and perhaps they're starting to climb back up again now so again COVID clearly isn't something that's behind us just yet. And if we break that down by states, these are new cases since December one. You can see New South Wales still has the bulk of cases, but a number of other states are still just starting to trend up as well. So again, despite a lot of reassuring messaging, we do need people to to still realise that COVID's out there and still something significant and worthy of taking some simple steps to prevent. And I'll go through that again a little bit later. So why do we have to think about uh, certain things with case numbers? I mean, it's a, it's a little bit tricky to, to interpret these numbers sometimes because there are a lot of variables that contribute to them. So uh, if we look at why they are still high, well, clearly that's the virus evolving, posing new challenges, BA2, which likely accounts for the bulk of the cases at the moment. And coming behind that are some new sub-variants, including BA2.12.1, bit of a mouthful, BA4 and even BA5. And all of those are looking at least a little bit more infectious. And I'll cover off on those a little bit later. Of course, what we're doing to combat the virus has very appropriately been wound back. And that does contribute to at least some of this transmission. So we've relaxed the close contact rules. And our booster rate has also plateaued, and I'll touch on that a little bit. And, of course, perception of risk is something that really does determine what people do with respect to mitigation strategies. And I think at the moment, perhaps the reassuring message is being overdone to a degree, such that a lot of people think that COVID is done and not something that needs to be considered or or something we need to take steps to address. And I think, in many ways, that's contributing to some of the issues we're seeing at the moment. And the other thing to consider in terms of case numbers is there's still likely to be a very significant underrepresentation. Of what the true numbers are. We know our testing rates have declined, <clears throat> excuse me, and I'll, I'll show a slide on that in the moment. And the use of rapid antigen tests, well, of course, it's great to have a test that people can do at home. I think we're really under-reporting those. And of course, also we're not collecting the negative ones, so we don't know what the positivity rate or the denominator of um, tests being done is. So it's a bit hard to interpret the case numbers in that context. And just to quickly show what's happening with testing numbers, on the left there we see the average daily PCR tests versus cases, and you can see, of course, they're very closely linked. And on the right, this is the positivity rate, which you can see is still very high in most states, which tells us that we're really not finding a very significant proportion of cases. Some would say a positivity rate of, say, 5% would indicate very good levels of control, and you can see we're well above that still at the moment. And in terms of the RFs, so a lot of people know of this arm which is basically the the number of people who are likely to get infected from an infected case. And the the picture on the right shows what would happen if a a viral infection had an R0 of two. Um, And and so we track the uh, the RF, which is essentially the the, the R0s in different states, to see what our trajectory is, whether things are, are perhaps going up or stable or going down. You can see there are three states or territories that have an RF below one, Tasmania, South Australia and Northern Territory, but five, and including the biggest states uh, of our states and territories, have an RF over one, which means we're expecting those case numbers to actually continue to climb unless we do something to intervene. If we look at our case numbers in hospital, this is by states, again, New South Wales, uh, obviously bearing the brunt of things here uh, in black. Uh, You can see that big peak we had right at the start of the year and things going up again in recent times, despite that little dip that we had uh, a few weeks ago. But it's important that we understand that tracking hospitalisations isn't quite as useful as it maybe was uh, last year. So it is something that we do need to keep an eye on, particularly in terms of hospital capacity and making sure we don't exceed that. But at the moment, I don't think it really gives us a reliable enough indication of the burden of disease or overall healthcare utilisation, because how we manage COVID has changed significantly. So we do have a lot of disease-modifying therapy, the idea of which is actually to keep people out of hospital, and it does that very effectively. But there's still a large burden in terms of finding these cases and linking people who will benefit from them to these medications. And and given these uh, PBS listed now, the oral antivirals at least, obviously the burden of that happens very much in the community and I'll touch on that a bit more later. But also most jurisdictions have virtual wards so COVID patients are being managed in their homes and that data isn't really tracked or reported in those hospitalisation figures. But that's still a very significant burden on healthcare systems and we're very fortunate we're able to do that because it does keep people out of hospital but I think if we just look at cases in hospital and ICU it gives us an underrepresentation of the burden on our healthcare systems more broadly and some of these virtual wards can provide very good services including oxygen saturation monitoring for example and then many of these virtual wards, people will be contacted every day. So, again, it is a lot of work, uh, for good reason, of course, but means we don't track all of that in those hospitalisation figures. If we do look at those, of course, uh, we still have uh, around 3,000 people in hospital uh, and still uh, a few hundred in ICUs. So, again, clearly COVID hasn't gone away and is still causing a significant burden on us in the healthcare system. And if we look at deaths... Uh, you can see a little bit of an aberration with that little spike there in the middle, but a big peak at the start of the year, and unfortunately things are continuing to to track up at the moment. And just to compare cases and deaths in terms of age and sex, you can see here the bulk of cases are actually in that 20 to 29 year age group and a lot of reasons for that. These people are perhaps out and about a bit more, maybe a bit more casual in terms of their mitigation strategies, maybe not uh, boosted, for example, as well. But if we actually look at the deaths and we know that age is a risk factor for more severe disease, you can see that the bulk of these are occurring in those older groups. But it is important to point out that those rates in those younger groups are not zero.
0: The following message is a community service announcement. I'm Professor Andrew Sindoni, cardiologist at Concord Hospital in Wright Hospital in Sydney. I'm talking to you today about the fact that we may be missing aortic stenosis in primary care. New prevalence data actually shows that many severe, symptomatic people with aortic stenosis in Australia go undiagnosed or untreated. The prevalence of symptomatic severe aortic stenosis in Australia is about 60,510 people, but only 7,073 of those were people with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis receive aortic valve replacement. Certain factors do increase the risk of developing aortic stenosis, and it's what we see every day. Advancing age, people over the age of 65, cardiovascular risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, cigarette smoking, and other conditions, chronic kidney disease, coronary artery disease. If we don't think about aortic stenosis, we're not going to find it. So if someone reports these sorts of things, grab your stethoscope, have a listen to their chest. Maybe you haven't listened to their chest for a long time, or ever, because they've not come to you very often, or they come with other reasons. This is a condition in which we can intervene. We can make a difference. With surgical aortic valve replacement, and nowadays with modern therapies, with transcutaneous aortic valve implantation, this has now been extended to older people who previously would have been felt to be not suitable for surgery. You say, oh, that person's old, they end not going to survive an operation. This is not a general anesthetic operation necessarily. It's a procedure which is done under sedation and local anesthetic in the femoral artery. And this can make a huge difference to symptoms and survival, keeping people out of hospital and really make a difference to their quality of life. If you think someone has aortic stenosis when you listen to their heart or if they have those symptoms of shortness of breath fatigue, syncope, chest pain. If you listen to the heart and you hear a murmur, either refer them for an echocardiogram or send them to see their cardiologist. Listen, suspect, refer.
2: If you look at global statistics, again, clearly this is something that's uh, still posing a a huge problem. Total reported deaths, over 6 million. Total confirmed cases, 510 million. A bit of a downward trend, but you can see maybe starting to plateau or maybe even increase again, and some of that's going to be those new sub-variants circulating uh, with a high degree of prevalence in a number of locations. And just to show where COVID sits now, so this is a death toll uh, of global pandemics over time, and COVID has moved up to seventh on that. So, Uh, Hopefully we don't see it track up too much more, but obviously that's very likely to be the case. And if you look at the the burden of disease globally, is you can see uh, that there's still a a large number of locations that that do have uh, a a large bulk of cases and and unfortunately deaths across the world. And if we look at excess deaths, some interesting data that came out recently to suggest those COVID deaths are likely a very small proportion of the actual excess deaths attributed to this virus. So official COVID reported deaths in this data was 5.4 million, but excess deaths during the pandemic nearly 15 million so perhaps three times what the death toll is officially being reported as and if we look at who uh, was represented in that data mostly male and mostly in lower middle income countries um, in terms of those excess deaths but looking at this Australia has done very well and I think for a number of reasons Australia has controlled this pandemic well of course it's impossible to get this uh, perfectly right all the time so some people will be critical of some parts of our response but all in all if you look at that excess deaths we've done an exceptional job of minimising the death toll at least uh, of this pandemic. So variants of concern, so something we're we're probably going to talk about in each of these updates because it's something that's still such a a prominent uh, issue with this virus. So we know these arise essentially spontaneously. Uh, The virus makes mistakes when it replicates, it's not uh, able to fix those, so it changes spontaneously all the time. A lot of the times it's not in the best interest of the virus and it will just fade away, but if it happens to stumble across a change that confers some some favourable properties for the virus, might be more transmissible, for example, then that new strain, or subvariant can maybe outcompete the other ones. And we've seen that happen a number of times uh, throughout this pandemic already. These are the variants of concern. The main ones, of course, beta gamma, delta, omicron. And now we're really in subvariant territory, which I'll come to now. So um, Omicron, kind of old news, really being reported at the end of November. Variant of concern very quickly thereafter was definitely more infectious. Really big number of mutations. And that's how this virus really changes. Its phenotype is when those spontaneous changes occur. In the spike protein, which, as we all know, that's the part of the virus it uses to interact with our cells to, to invade, and also the part that our immune systems target, as well as uh, that the vaccines all target protection against. Uh, this was probably three to four times more infectious than Delta. Um, some data suggests it uh, multiplied in the upper airways uh, up to 70 times faster. But we did see a slight drop-off in our protection from two vaccines that we very fortunately could restore with that third dose. So that's why the booster became so important. And we successively reduced the, the interval between the completion of the primary vaccination course and that booster, largely to address Omicron. We then saw BA2, the subvariant first found in the Philippines. Again, probably another 30 to 50% more infectious. Really took over in most countries, to be honest. But importantly, no more severe. Still excellent protection from three doses of vaccination. Some implications for some of our therapies as well, like citrovimab and some of the other antibody therapies that probably weren't quite as efficacious uh, against this subvariant. But where we are now, BA4, BA5, and BA2.1, 2.1. Uh, and these have all been detected in Australia. So um, they've been around for a little while. So BA4, um, 10th of Jan, uh, BA5, 25th of Feb, both in South Africa. Um, and uh, BA5 particularly, uh, as well as BA4, likely responsible for a surge of cases uh, over there. More infectious than BA1 and BA2, but again, no more severe. Uh, BA2.1, 2.1, been around since February. It's a sublineage of BA2, really big number of cases in the USA, and they're thinking it's probably responsible for, for an uh, increase uh, over there, uh, and is maybe the most infectious uh, version or subvariant so far. So, um, and in terms of immune evasion, this is something we're still looking at. So, how well our vaccines will still work. Early studies do show that all three in laboratory studies may be able to evade neutralization um, a little bit more than, say, uh, BA1 but it's still likely our vaccines will work very well. And most importantly, as we've seen throughout, even if we do see a slight reduction in protection from infection, for example, or neutralisation in the laboratory, we still expect very good protection from severe disease. So at this stage, it's not really that bad news in terms of vaccine protection. And what we often then get asked is, when are we going to have a variant-specific booster? And all the main companies have made variant-specific boosters all the way back to alpha. But when they've been tested so far, they haven't been required. So it's not that we can't do it or won't do it. So far, we haven't needed to do that. We still get great protection from a third dose of the original vaccines and of course in this country now people that are particularly susceptible and we'll touch on this a bit later are eligible even for that fourth dose now but what we really need to do is make sure everyone who's eligible gets those vaccine doses. So i just sort of quickly throw in a little bit of an update from ATAGI. There have been some recent changes. Uh, one of the main ones and we were getting asked this very frequently, when should I get vaccinated after I've had COVID and particularly given the number of people that have been infected in recent times. So recent uh, update from last week, vaccination recommended to be deferred for three months after confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection for all COVID-19 vaccine doses, including booster doses. Now, importantly, this doesn't mean if you get infected, you don't need to continue with your vaccination course, whichever you're eligible for, but ATAGI have asked for that to be deferred for three months. Um, The intervals for the mRNA vaccines have also been changed. Now, People may recall we shortened some of those intervals, particularly to combat Delta, knowing that we needed that second dose protection at that time. But one of the things that was probably compromised at least a little bit then was longevity of protection. So now in an effort to address that, we've increased those intervals. And it's also thought that it might be a little bit safer with a very slight reduction in myocarditis risk. Important to remember, but that that still remains a very rare adverse event related to those mRNA vaccines. So just to summarise a few points from, from their advice, so boosters for everyone 16 years of age and over three months from completion of the primary course, either mRNA vaccine for a booster if you're 18 or older, 16 to 70 year olds should get Pfizer. AstraZeneca, not recommended generally as a booster, but is available if there's a contraindication to the other vaccines. Novavax is approved for primary vaccination particularly at this stage but can be used as a booster for people 18 years and older if no other vaccines are deemed suitable. The winter booster for those people who are most vulnerable at four months from the third dose and these are people who are over 65, aged with disability care residents, Indigenous over 50 and people that are severely immunocompromised Um, And the flu and the COVID vaccine, we get asked this a lot, can be given in the same day. Opposite arms, of course, but can be given in the same day. Lots of great work happening on combining those vaccines. Still in clinical trials, however, that's not something that's available just yet. And just to show the actual rates of myocarditis, it is something that does occur very rarely. This table, freely available on the Targi website, has been updated in recent times. So this is rates per million doses by age, and you can see the highest risk there, uh, of course, second dose, uh, younger males, so 12 to 17, and even though those numbers are obviously higher than we'd uh, essentially like them to be, it still remains a very rare adverse event. Uh, One other thing I was asked to touch on is some recent discussion around uh, other cardiovascular events potentially being related to these vaccines and particularly a, a study out of Israel very recently where they looked at other cardiac events and to be honest I don't think it's a study that really changes our thinking all that much just yet. They looked at cardiac arrest and acute coronary syndrome calls to their emergency medical service uh, in young people in a fairly short time frame and basically compared that to pre-pandemic levels in recent times and said well they've gone up a little bit so um, it's likely to be from the vaccine. So Um, We know these events are associated with COVID-19. There was some thought that they timed them with some clever statistics to say it was more likely vaccine than COVID. But we do know those events that are associated with COVID-19, highly prevalent there at the time. So I think it's hard to exclude a contribution there. We know the vaccines are associated with myocarditis, very rarely of course, but still are. And so those calls could clearly have been myocarditis, not necessarily other coronary events as, as potentially suggested. We know there's been lots of other factors that have contributed to some of these sort of changes. People's healthcare utilisation changed during the pandemic. People perhaps didn't attend for, for primary or secondary prevention um, measures and uh, may have deferred presentation for a whole host of reasons. So maybe there are other risk factors there and uh, and poor management of those that, that may have contributed. And this was really uh, a limited study in terms of its uh, design. Uh, aggregated data, very limited. Didn't confirm these diagnoses, didn't follow these people to see exactly what happened. Obviously the the correlation versus causation argument comes in is that now we have a population that's highly vaccinated. There is a tendency to to relate anything to to vaccination but of course uh, just seeing these numbers like this certainly doesn't do that. Um, And they had a very high denominator in terms of the the proportion of the population who's vaccinated. So basically anything anomalous that occurs there, uh, there'll be a tendency to link it to the vaccine, but it doesn't mean it's definitely associated. Mm -hmm. If we look at our vaccines by location, while many states have done a really good job, you can see those rates are starting to plateau. And there are some states on the bar graphs on the right we're well, still not quite where we need it to be. So again, the messaging that COVID's done and we don't need to worry about that now is clearly not the case. And we still have some work to do with vaccinations as well. And if we look at boosters, that's where we really want to get people uh, up and, and fully boosted, particularly with Omicron and the new emerging subvariants. And you can see we're still below 70% of people that have taken up that booster. And so that's something we really do need to address. And I think part of that is obviously um, people's perception of risk. It's also uh, a lot of people had COVID, so there might be people who are deferring that, and that's now okay for three months based on target's advice. But I think there's a lot of people who feel they don't need to get boosted if they've had COVID, and that's certainly not the case. And so, in terms of new vaccines, again, we get asked this quite a lot, and I, I have shown this slide before. There's a, a big list of additionally desired desired properties we'd like in a new vaccine so it doesn't detract from how efficacious our vaccines are at the moment doing a tremendous job particularly if you've had three doses but there are some things we'd like in a in a so-called second generation vaccine Um, and there's a lot of vaccines still in clinical trials over 120 but there's been a lot of discussion about uh, vaccines able to be given via an alternate route so not needle and syringe for for a host of reasons so i thought i'd just very quickly touch on that today Um, There are some oral vaccines in clinical trials, and this is one that I'm involved in, so we know with AstraZeneca we insert the instructions to make spike protein in a harmless virus and we give that vinyl and syringe intramuscularly, but some people have actually inserted those same instructions in a harmless bacteria, basically a probiotic that can be ingested with the thought that we get expression of those spike proteins uh, at that area. Obviously a lot of favourable properties in terms of being able to give something orally, But one thing we're really striving to do is get better mucosal immunity, perhaps, because obviously if we get mucosal immunity, that's something that might help stop the virus getting in, or at least do that to a degree. So there's some hope that uh, giving a vaccine via this route might do that. But of course, one way to hopefully get an immunity that might be better at stopping the virus getting in is to give the vaccine via the same route that the virus does enter, and so in this case intranasally. And so there's lots of talk about intranasal vaccines, including a, a lot of stuff going around this week. Thank you. The cat this is a really clever intranasal vaccine. One of the things we really struggle with when we do give things intranasally is getting a strong enough response that it does provide the protection that we need. So with the AstraZeneca vaccine, that doesn't replicate, whereas this group have made an adenoviral vector vaccine that is able to undergo one cycle of replication. So you do get a lot more spike protein, maybe around 100 fold, and there's thought that that might be sufficient to give that mucosal response and hopefully help stop the virus getting in. And in fact, there's a large number of other intranasal vaccines in clinical trials. As I say, the main uh, added benefit that we hope we'll see is mucosal immunity, maybe be able to stop the vaccine, sorry, the virus getting in, unlikely to replace the, the vaccines we have now that are given by needle and syringe that we know work really well at preventing severe disease. So it might be we use a combination, one of these, to get that mucosal immunity up to reduce your chance of getting infected and maybe still an intramuscular vaccine to give your immune system that boost it needs to stop you getting really sick if the virus does get in. And as I say, a long list there uh, of intranasal vaccines in clinical trials at the moment. I probably don't need to tell this audience that the flu is back. We've seen a very significant increase in flu-like illnesses and flu diagnoses. And of course, we know why. We, our measures to protect us from COVID were very effective also at preventing uh, the flu getting in and spreading. And we've now appropriately undone all of those, uh, including particularly uh, the closure of the international border. So the flu is back. It's being transmitted. And of course, one of the things we're seeing at the moment is our population is perhaps more susceptible than it's been in a very long time to the flu because we've had such low numbers of cases so no-one's protected from recent infection. And also our vaccine rates have declined, given everyone's been so focused on the COVID vaccine. So uh, to the end of April, nearly 3,000 notifications, with uh, around half of those in the preceding two weeks. We've seen quite a few admissions, 50 or so, to sentinel hospitals. So that's not all of them, of course. Um, And and a lot are occurring in um, those younger age groups, including children younger than 10. And one of the things that's very different about the flu to COVID, of course, is it can cause more significant diseases. In kids. And kids are uh, very responsible for transmission. They can be considered so-called super spreaders for the flu. And that's why um, they're listed as a, a group that can get the flu vaccine for free, kids under five on the NIP, and why it's so important that we do uh, address the flu in kids. Most of the cases we're seeing a flu A, a mix of H1N1, H3N2, um, and, and so far of the small numbers that have been fully typed, they do look to resemble um, the the vaccine components, well, so a vaccine match at the moment is holding up. So much talk about flu rona, um, and uh, it's not a recombinant like Delta Cron, where we had Delta and Omicron infect the same person and actually combine. This is just people being co infected with the flu and COVID. Um, And the issue there, of course, is disease severity. So those people do tend to be more prone to more severe disease, again, while it's so worthy of preventing both infections. And so we need a bit of a a change in how we consider both testing and vaccination, I think. At the moment, we're so focused on COVID, our rapid antigen tests don't pick up the flu. And so many people have said they've had a negative rapid antigen test, so they go about their day-to-day lives. And if we do that, we may miss the bulk of the flu cases and not be able to uh, address those. So we do need to to start to look to test for the flu, particularly if people are COVID negative and having symptoms, and reinforce a lot of the messages we've always said around flu season is that if you're sick, stay home. You're actually doing everyone a disservice by uh, attending work. Um, Presenteeism actually costs us a lot more than staying home until you're well therapies. Again, this does change really quickly, so I'll just go through this uh, fairly rapidly at the moment. So Trovimab, the intravenous uh, therapy that we were using for, for such a long time, doesn't really work quite so well against BA2. There's a, an application to the TGA to use that at a higher dose, but we're using that a bit less now, and particularly uh, because we have those oral therapies available. Um, we are still using Remdesivir uh, in people that are sick and in hospital um, and that does retain efficacy against BA2. Some talk in other countries about using that uh, in an early outpatient-based type of therapy, and I believe some jurisdictions are doing that. hasn't really caught on all across Australia, again, particularly because we have those oral antivirals, so Paxlovid, Molnupiravir, now both available through the PBS. And the other big change is um, Evvusheld, so a long-acting antibody combination that's given intramuscularly. It's 2.0. Uh, injections at the same time, uh, and we want to use that as pre-exposure prophylaxis, so identify people who are very unlikely to respond to the vaccine and give them that same level of protection with with an antibody uh, injection. Uh, At the moment, I think there's still some struggles about identifying who's likely to benefit from that the most, and in the context of constrained supply, we haven't really got that uh, up and running in some parts of the country as much as we'd like, so certainly something we need to keep a bit of an eye on. And of course, with the uh, oral therapies, um, they're really up and running well and I think making a big difference. Um, a lot of people are still asking about the differences. The main things to remember, of course, um, Paxlovid probably more efficacious. No head-to-head trials done, however, but the data supporting its use would, would suggest it's certainly uh, more efficacious. Does have the drug-drug interactions due to the ritonavir. I think we're getting better at checking those. So many apps and websites people are becoming more familiar with. Molnupiravir doesn't come with those same drug-drug interactions, but probably a bit less effective. Both cannot be used in pregnancy or even people contemplating or at risk of pregnancy. Pregnancy testing is something a lot of jurisdictions are doing. Um, and Paxlovid also can't be used with very significant organ impairment. Dose reduction for slightly reduced EGFR and contraindicated for, for more significant renal impairment issues. And I know it's not COVID related, but something else I was asked to just touch on uh, was the acute hepatitis of unknown etiology That we're seeing in so many parts of the world at the moment and is really concerning and so many people have had a tendency to to link this with COVID or COVID vaccines and at the moment our best evidence would suggest that that's not the case you can see as of a few weeks ago nearly 170 cases from 11 countries and and the list of where they are is written there Young children, so one month to 16 years, have been infected with this. 17 have required liver transplantation. And there's been at least one death, but probably quite a few more. Clinically, the presentation is one of abdominal pain, diarrhea and vomiting. With markedly elevated liver enzymes and most aren't febrile at least when they've been reviewed and the cause still isn't known but there's a lot of really good work being done to try and elucidate exactly what's doing this adenovirus has been detected in around half of those cases so there's a lot of talk that that's likely to be uh, the the virus that might be responsible SARS-CoV-2 has been identified in only a small proportion of those Um, and so of course if SARS-CoV-2 was directly implicated we'd expect to see a a much higher number of these cases than we have and most have actually occurred in unvaccinated children so the talk that the vaccine is causing this is simply not supported by the data we have at the moment and as we do with all um, potential adverse events while we're rolling out these vaccines in such high numbers, these sort of things are monitored very closely. If we did think there was a signal in terms of vaccine relatedness, well we would have changed how we use these vaccines and it's simply not the case so we can reassure everybody that this doesn't appear to be a, a COVID or a COVID vaccine-related phenomenon, and that we're working hard to to get to the bottom of what might be causing it. And I'll stop there. Thanks. Just
1: a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.